0: All right, grab your Bible and go with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter number 5. Hope you've had a great week so far. Uh, I mean, considering the fact that today's the first day of the week. <laughs> so, you know, I don't, I don't generally talk about the weather. I kind of pride myself in that because that's an old man thing to do, basically. <laughs> so I don't generally talk much about the weather, but, Dad, gum, I'm sick of this nonsense, aren't you? I don't know what we have to do to get that global warming going, (laughs) really, I mean, I'm going to try to burn some tires or something at the house, see if we can punch a little bigger hole in the ozone layer, I don't know what to do at this point, but it's ridiculous, it was uh, 16 degrees, maybe 18 degrees when I left the house this morning, so uh, I'm done with it, I am officially done, not that the Lord asked my opinion, but I'm giving it anyway, so... uh, Anyhow, it'll be nice and hot. We'll be griping about the heat for long. Y'all know that. So some of you won't, but us white people will. <laughs> when you're redheaded and pale-faced, it's, just, it's not a friendly. It's not friendly. Plus, I, I've, I've mentioned this before. I'm kind of a fan of flannel shirts, so I'm going to miss that. You know, t- every time fall rolls around, I'm like, yeah, it's flannel shirt season. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking this summer that I'm going to go Larry the Cable Guy and just cut the sleeves off. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? That'd be a good look. Somebody needs to revive that. If you guys can bring back the mullet, I think I can bring back the sleeveless flannel. So anyway, so we're in a study this year of the book of Romans. I don't know how long it's going to take us to get through it. Uh, We spent all of last year in Acts, and now we're teaching through uh, the book of Romans. And, And I've said this before, but it's a very true statement. Uh, you can you can really run as deep as you want to in the book of Romans. I, there there's so much content here that we could we could spend probably the next two years in the book of Romans. The problem with that is I'd get bored and you'd get bored and we'd all be bored. And who wants to be bored in church? Um, so I'm trying to trying to cover what needs to be covered. Trying to give you a very good grasp. I've said before it's sort of an associates level class on the book. Um, And then on Wednesday nights, we've been digging even deeper in what we'd we'd call more of a bachelor's level um, study of the book of Romans. But nonetheless, we are in chapter 5. We're going to segue into chapter 6 today, Lord willing. But uh, if I could have your attention for a few minutes, I'd like to read several passages to you. We're going to start in verse number 6 and read on down through the end of the chapter. As I've pointed out before, um, anything taken out of context is a pretext. You always got to keep Scripture in its context. That's always true, but it is, it is, it's even more true with the book of Romans. Romans, of course, none of the letters of Paul, none of the books of the Bible, in fact, uh, were written with, with chapter and verse uh, divisions. They were all, they were all written as, as one whole, and they are to be received as a whole, and that's absolutely true with Romans, so much so that we cover chapters one through four uh, together, right? And so now I want you to look with me in chapter 5, and, and the reason I, I want to read the, the, basically most of the chapter, all but the first five verses, is I want you to see how this all flows together. So pick up with me in Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. It says, for when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. I want to elaborate on this today, but last Sunday we covered the, the, the basic concept of verse number 10 is that if God looked on us in his mercy while we were in our sinful state, while we were still unconverted, while we, before we came to know Christ as our Savior, before we became the sons and the daughters of God, if God then looked on us in love and mercy and grace, how much more now does he look on us through his love? There's sort of this uh, twisted mindset that as the people of God, now when we screw up and mess up, God's ready to drop the hammer, and what Paul is saying is, he said, if he loved you that much before, he, before you came to know him and before you became his child, how much more does he love you now? Man, I'm going to tell you what, I don't understand a lot of things in life, but I know what it is to love a kid. And I'm not saying I love my kids more than anybody else loves their kids, but you won't find anybody loves their kids any more than I love my kids. And, and when it comes to the love of the, of, of the heavenly father, he says, he's not going to quit on you now. You're gonna mess up. Just don't, don't mess up on purpose, but be prepared because you're gonna mess up. I had somebody say one time when he heard me say something like that, he said, You know, you're, you're setting people up for failure. I said, I'm not setting them up for failure, I'm setting them up for forgiveness because they're gonna need it. You will fail, it's inevitable. Whether I tell you that or not, it's gonna happen. And so Paul is saying, God loves you so much now, even with all your blemishes, your spots, your failures, your your little areas in life that you're still struggling with. He said, God's not giving up on you. And, And then in verse number, where were we? That just gets me so fired up. Verse number 11, he says, and not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So I'm not awaiting a day. We're not waiting for a day when we uh, will be reconciled in God's eyes. He said we've received reconciliation. We've been made right with God. I said on Wednesday night, if you were here, that that you're not going to earn any more of God's favor than you already have. Everything we receive from God is a gift of grace. And we're going to see that sort of mentioned a couple times here, and I'm saying that in a smart aleck way because it's, it's mentioned over and over in a redundant fashion in the next few verses. But, but we've received the grace of God in such abundance and, it's, and so freely. He says, you have been currently present tense, reconciled with God that Jesus Christ has renewed and, and, and made one that which was at, at enmity with each other, which was humanity and deity. Christ bridged the gap. And so he says, we have now received the reconciliation. Verse number 12, therefore justice through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. Thus death spread to all men because all sinned For unto the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. So he said even before the law was given to Moses, death still reigned. As soon as Adam and Eve disobeyed God, the one command that was given to them, uh, that, that death entered into the world. So verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift, I want you to see if you can discover a theme here without me pointing it out too obviously, okay? Uh, See if you pick up on a theme in the next few verses. He says, but the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification for if by one man's offense death reigned through the one much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ therefore just as through one man's offense judgment came to all men resulting in condemnation even so through one man's righteous act the free gift came to all men resulting Injustification of life. Has anybody picked up on a theme yet? It's mentioned a couple times, isn't it? It's a free gift. Verse 18, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men resulting in justification of life. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by, by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, again, I'm repeating some things I've already said, but... But, but there are some spots in Romans that become not so much a tongue twister, but if you, if you, if you don't slow down and read it carefully, it all kind of just runs together. And so that's the case with verses 15 through the end of chapter number 5. So we're going to slow it down a little bit and break down what all that means. So let's pray as we dig into our seventh installment in the series titled A Gospel-Centered Culture. Our Heavenly Father, we come into your presence now with a spirit of thanksgiving. Lord, my heart was, was stirred up listening to, to our young people and Mark as they led us in worship. Father, we thank you for them, and God, we thank you for the fact that we can sing, that we can lift our voices, and it's not some, some fairy tale, it's not just some whimsical ideology. We actually are anchored in Christ Christ. Our souls are bound to this eternal truth that Christ loves us and that we have been brought into relationship because of him. And today, I pray that you'd help us to see that very clearly. I pray that your spirit would teach us, that you would guide us into all truth. We seek your wisdom. Father, I seek your help. I pray that you would use me for your glory and honor. I stand in a place where my my physical body, my intellect will fail me. I need the anointing of your spirit. And so I pray that your spirit would fill me now, that you would use me for your glory and honor and for the help of your people, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as you picked up reading here in these, in these passages, there is, there's a stark contrast made between Adam and Jesus. And so he draws this parallel between Adam, who was the first man that God created in the garden, and between Jesus. The purpose being is that Adam is the federal head of the human race. So so when we think about Adam and what he represents, which by the way, uh, verse verse number 14 gives us the insight. Notice in the latter part of verse 14 says that Adam is a type of him who was to come. So Adam was a real person, obviously, uh, but he also represents something and someone. And so he begins drawing this contrast, and so we discover, if we're going to really understand what it means, that Adam is the federal head of the human race. Federal headship refers to the representation of a group united under a federation or a covenant. And so we talk about Adam being the federal head. We understand that that means he's the representative of all the human race. And as by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. So Adam is the one who disobeyed in the beginning. By the way, if we complain about the commandments and all these things, God originally only gave one commandment to humanity and we couldn't keep that one either. And then he gave 10 and they broke those. Then he gave all the other ones, 614 or whatever. I lose count. But, but he gave all the commandments. And the fact of the matter is, whether Adam sinned or not, you and I would have done the same, right? I mean, I'm planning on having a talk with, with old boy when I get to heaven, all right? We're going to surround Adam. Let's just plan that in advance. We're going to surround him and have a conversation, but the fact remains that had I been in his shoes, if I would have been the one in the garden, I would have made the same mistake because we, we have a free will and free will desires, ultimately free will desires to be its own God. By free will, uh, we desire our own headship, we desire our own, lo- or our own lordship, we desire to reign over our own kingdom, we want to be the masters of our own destiny. And so we would have made the same bad decision that Adam made, but through that, uh, Adam became the federal head of the human race, and through his disobedience, the Bible tells us that death passed upon all men. And then it says that, 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 that Adam is a type of him who was to come, and so then we see Jesus enter center stage, and we understand now that this contrast is being drawn between Adam and and Jesus. So what exactly is the contrast? Well, the contrast is that just as Adam is the federal head of the human race, Christ is the federal head of the redeemed. So those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ now have a new head. We now have a new sovereign. We now have a new leader. We now have a new Lord. We were born into Adam, but as Paul describes, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are transplanted from that kingdom that is dictated and and governed by death to a new kingdom that is dictated and governed by life, light, and the peace of God that passes understanding. And so notice the contrast and comparison given here. In verse number 15, it says, But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So here's the contrast. In Adam, we, we inherited a sin nature. But but he says that he says that, that, that the contrast, he says the, the, the nature the first nature is, is not like the, the, the second nature. He says the gift is not like the offense. He said, because in Adam we inherited this, this propensity to sin. He says, now in Christ much more the gift of or the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. We'll talk more about this in just a minute. But he says, now in Christ, we have inherited grace. We've inherited favor because of what Jesus has done. God looks on me in love. God looks on us in mercy. God receives us as his very own children. So as in Adam, we received a sin nature. In Christ, we receive a nature that should be dominated by grace. We'll get back to that. Verse number 16. Notice this. He says, and the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. So notice once again a contrast. In Adam, all it took was one offense to bring death on the entire human race. You follow me? One offense. It took one offense. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of, the good, of good and evil. There's one tree in the, in the middle of the garden that if you eat that tree in the day that you eat it, you're going to die. So Paul goes all the way back to the garden and he says, you know, it only took one offense. It took one transgression. It took one moment of disobedience for death to take over and infect the human race with iniquity where we are now born with a propensity, with, we're driven toward things that really go against the nature of God. In John chapter number one, John said, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. That is a testament of our nature. We love things that are bad for us. We crave things that that, that damage our character. We crave things that kill our bodies. We like stuff that's not good for us. You can apply this to any area of life. I like to apply it to diet because it's so easy to understand. Things that taste good or bad for you. This is just a simple way to learn how to eat right. If it tastes good, stop eating it. You say, well, it doesn't have any sugar. Well, then tell me, how does it taste so good? It's because they're putting fake sweetener in it, and that's even worse. See what I mean? Anything that tastes good is bad for you. And if it tastes bad, it's good for you. Just Let's just start eating dirt is what I figure. I don't know. You try to, you try to get healthy, and you find, man, it's, I mean, it's torture. It really is, you know, self-deprivation and you know what I'm saying? It's torture. And so we understand that now this contrast is being drawn, that it was, it was one offense, it was one transgression, one sin that brought this into the human race. But then he says, and again, this gets a little wordy and a little confusing, not because it's a lot of big words, but just because the way they sort of run together, he says, but, but the free gift, which is the mercy of God, the grace of God, salvation, he says the free gift is not like the offense. Because the, the 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 really the sin that we've inherited, the nature that we've inherited as human beings came through one man's disobedience, but essentially he's saying Jesus took many offenses on Himself on the cross. So as Adam brought sin through, brought, brought, brought condemnation through one sin, Jesus brought justification by Himself, becoming sin for us. On the cross, now if you haven't been with us thus far in the journey, we have already covered the subject of divine imputation. That on the cross of, of, of Calvary, Jesus himself, who knew no sin, was sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Christ, the lovely lamb of God, lived a spotless, sinless life. He, he was impeccable. He was perfect. He was Emmanuel, which is God in the flesh. God, through Jesus Christ, lived a perfect, holy, sinless life, and yet on the cross, it tells us that he took all of our offenses, all of our sin, all the bad things we've ever done on himself. So Paul here draws a stark contrast. He said, Adam sinned once, and it brought death. Jesus died once, and it brought life to all who believe in him. Now notice this in verse number 17. We're we're rushing through this so we can get to the good stuff, okay? But if you don't pay attention to this, you're going to miss the good stuff. Watch this, verse 17, he says, For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one, Jesus Christ. So we see in Adam in verse number 17, death reigned. Death rules the day. Our greatest enemy, by the way, is death. It's what we fear. You don't fear your own death. Some of you are dumb and you're not afraid to die, right? I've never personally really been afraid to die. My tough. It makes me kind of stupid, honestly. But I do fear the death of those around me. I fear the loss of loved ones, and we all feel that. We all feel the pain of loss. Death is the greatest enemy of humanity. It makes us mortal. It, it reminds us that time... It's is like a vapor. Our lives are here for a little while and then vanish away. So we understand that in Adam, death reigned. We are under this dark cloud. We are under this albatross. And we live in this valley that is overshadowed by death itself. But in Christ, it says life reigns. So as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now we are not bound by death. This is why Paul would later go on to write in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, he says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written: "O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory?" The strength of sin is death, and the sting of sin—the uh, strength of sin—is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ we now have life reigning in us and so I'm not looking forward to the day I die I'm looking forward to the day I really get to live and we now presently possess eternal life it's not the awaited possession of the believer it's something that we currently hold within us that Christ has given us life and now life reigns through one his name is Jesus so there's this contrast that's given Another one offered to us in verse number 18, it says, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. Am I going too fast? I feel like I'm going too fast. It's all good. Like, this is all so good. Verse 18, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. So in Adam, we have judgment. We do. We're all under condemnation. We're all under judgment. In Adam, naturally born, we live under this really sentence of death that one day we're going to stand before God and give an account for all the things that we've done in this world. In fact, the Bible elaborates so much on this subject that it says the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. That'd be a scary thought. If I I, I were lost, if I didn't know the Lord, that would would freak me out because I know that I've done some things I wish the Lord hadn't seen. It says the eyes of the Lord are in every place. He beholds the evil. He sees every thought. He sees the intent of our heart. He knows our motives. He knows everything about us. But so in Adam, we, we live under this judgment, but then the contrast of Jesus Christ is that now we have been justified. There's another word that we've covered. I told you earlier in the series that there'd be a lot of legal terminology used in the book of Romans. And this legal term is the very thing That gives us the right, the power to be in the presence of God. This is the golden key that unlocks the gates of heaven. And it's the fact that in Christ we have been given a certificate of justification that God has pardoned us. That God seeing everything that we've ever done, God knowing every evil thought that's ever filtered through our depraved minds, God knowing all of that, when Jesus died on the cross, when we put our faith and trust in him, the Bible says that God clearly and freely pardoned us. He justified us by the blood of Jesus Christ. We'll talk more about that too. Coming back around, if this mic keeps cutting out, I'm going to go to a handheld as much as I don't want to, so wave at me if I need to change it. It's a new mic, all right, that's about to get thrown through the window. Verse number 19, verse number 19, notice this, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. What were we made through Adam? So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Now this is so important because this verse really ties up so many things that we've already said. About, about the imputed righteousness of Christ, about the fact that our sin was imputed or placed on Christ's account. When we trust in Jesus Christ, God not only takes all of our sin away, that's justification, but he takes all the right things that Jesus ever did. The perfect, sinless perfection of Jesus Christ is what makes us right in the eyes of God. Now, you have to get this because, as I've said, we often, as, in Christian circles, and church culture, a lot of times we talk about the gospel and we treat the gospel as if, well, you know that, I, I, yeah, I got saved years ago and, and I understand the gospel, I know the gospel, and we, and we tend to start tuning it out any time a guy gets up and says, uh, you know, I want to talk to you today about the gospel of Jesus Christ, us good seasoned Christians, we just shut down and go, I already know that, I already understand it, and you might, But what we fail to understand and what we fail to recognize so often is that the the same gospel that saved us, whenever that was, I was 19 years old, but whenever that happened in your life, the same gospel that saved you, that made Christ real to you, that brought you into relationship with God uh, originally, is the same gospel today that's still at work in you that still gives you access to the presence of God, that still gives you the ability to let the grace of God reign in your life. It's what gives us the power to live for Jesus. It's not by might, and it's not by my power, but it's by the Spirit of God that's been given to us through the grace of Jesus Christ. Now notice this, and I keep saying this, but, but we are never going to inherit more of God's favor. You are, you are as loved as you're ever going to be in God's eyes, and that's a lot of love. You're as accepted as you will ever be in God's eyes, and you're fully accepted. We're not, we're not serving him. We're not, we don't go to church. We don't pray. We don't read our Bible. We don't listen to preaching. We don't worship in order to earn more of God's favor. We do all of these things because we recognize our identity in Christ, and we now worship, and we now serve, and we now live, and we now love, and we now do those things because our consciences have been cleared, and our records have been made right, and we have a perfect standing in the eyes of God because of Jesus Christ, not because of what we've done. Notice again what it says in verse number 20. Notice the contrast. You have to get this. I'm not moving until you do. He says, for as by one man's disobedience. Do you see that? That's Adam. Many were made sinners. That's us. So also, by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. By one man's disobedience, we inherited condemnation. We inherited judgment. We inherited and were born into death. Right? It's the most encouraging thing you're gonna to hear today from the moment you were born. You've been one step closer to death every day. You're welcome. We were born into that. We inherited that. Didn't do anything for it. We just got it. He says, even so in Christ, when we when we trust in him, when we put our faith in him, as he dealt with earlier in 5 about being justified by faith, just as Abraham was justified by faith and David was justified by faith and Paul was justified by faith. He said, when we come to know Christ as Savior and we believe in him, we are completely made right in the eyes of God. The same way that you inherited all the negative from Adam, you inherit all the positive in Jesus. That's why it's so important that we articulate and accentuate the fact that we're not saved by our own goodness. We're not saved by our own works. We're going to see where good works fit into the Christian life, but that's not what saves us. You see, when you live by the law, one of two things will happen. You will, A, either become an arrogant, hypocritical, judgmental, pharisaical, can somebody help me, (laughs) condescending, self-righteous individual, who thinks you're better than everybody else, who looks down on people because their sin stinks worse than yours. That's one facet. That's one thing that will happen. Or you'll just get completely defeated and get discouraged and depressed, and you'll throw up your hands and you'll quit because nobody can live perfectly. It's impossible. If you find your identity in the law, you will fail. And so when you fail, the only, you only have one of two options. You either accept the fact that you failed to keep the law or you pretend by, by grabbing onto a few little pieces of the law and say, well, I don't do this, this, or this. Well, let pick out our little pet laws that we like to keep. It's not too, you know, because we all have things that, that we maybe don't struggle in, right? Or maybe not. You struggle with everything. Okay, cool. Oh, you are a worse sinner than I am. We all have have areas of strength and we all have areas of weakness. And, you know, the self-righteous, religious, inflated ego maniac looks on people whose sin doesn't look quite like theirs. They always fail to mention gossip and covetousness and backbiting and lying and hatred and unforgiveness. They, They always look over those sins. But, you know, we don't drink, we don't cuss, we don't chew, and we don't hang out with people who do, right? And all of a sudden, now we're spiritual because we've got our list, and we've checked some boxes. But he says, you need to understand something. You're just as depraved as anybody else is. You're sinful, you're broken, you're messed up. We're all messed up. But in Christ, we've been made alive. We've been, he has made things right. That doesn't mean that life will always be perfect. It doesn't mean that we'll never fail. But it does mean as far as our standing with God is concerned, in Jesus Christ, we have been fully reconciled, fully redeemed, and fully made right. And so in Adam, we're all sinners. In Christ, we've been made righteous. You are looking at a righteous bunch of people. Not self-righteous. But righteous in Christ, you're looking at a holy group of people right here. you are you're looking at what the Bible calls y'all saints, shocking to me <laughs> but we've been we've been made we've been made saintly in the eyes of God. that's crazy isn't it? But he says the same way that we were born with a sin nature in in Adam we've been born. We've been born into this new family and been made completely and utterly right in the eyes of God. Now, notice in verse number 20, now is the time that I begin to contemplate how far we're going to dig into this. Verse number 20, notice this, moreover the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded so much more. Now, I'd love to stay on that verse for a minute, but let me just simply state it like this. It means that God's grace is greater than your greatest mistake. God's grace is greater than your greatest mistake. Now, it's overwhelming to try to compile all the things that we've ever done wrong, so if you could just grab a hold of that one thing you wish you could change, you know what it is, don't you? I got about 45, 50 different things I can think of that I would go back and, and, and if God gave me a redo, I would redo it. So what he's saying here is that the grace of God is greater than your most shameful mistake, the worst thing you've ever done. You say, well, that was so great. Well, it's not great enough that it can define you. Because in Christ, we've been given a new identity. We have been given a new life. And so he says, don't let that thing define you. You're defined by the fact that where sin abounded, God's grace abounded so much more, so much more than your worst mistake." Verse 21, we got to go. We got to go. I've only got about 40 minutes left. Verse 21, it says, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Mm Mm-hmm. It's good, isn't it? Just as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, I've been preaching long enough, you'd think I could figure out how much content I could get through in about 30 minutes, but I still haven't figured that out yet. So let me try to dig into this. Can we go on to chapter six real quick? If you say no, I will stop. Okay, let's stop. I'm just kidding. I ain't stopping. Here we go. Let's dig into verse six. We seriously have about 15 minutes. Uh, so notice what Paul says in chapter six, verse number one. He said, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now that is an incredible question. That's an incredible question. Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? So, so logically speaking, from a human perspective, if if the more i sin the more grace i receive this was their reasoning though for real if the more i sin the more grace i receive then i ought to keep sinning more so that i can get more of god's grace in my life and paul sort of just you know with this ast- astounded mind says you think we should continue so we could keep, we should keep sinning so that god can give us more grace that's stupid right that's just dumb logic that doesn't even make sense. But, but, but here's what's important to note. Now, we, we've talked about, and last week I asked you to follow with me on sort of a, a dual thought pattern. You remember this? I want you to think through what we're studying here, both doctrinally and practically, how these things apply. So from a doctrinal perspective in the book of Romans, we have established that salvation comes through the grace of God, nothing that we do on our own. It's not by our works, it's not by keeping the law, it's not by being religious, it's not even by being baptized. And he's going to cover that in chapter 6 as well. But but as we get to chapter 6, we understand that this concept has been well established by now. Like if you haven't got it by now, I don't know that you'll ever get it. Paul just went through this whole series in the last part of chapter 5, the free gift, the free gift, the free gift, the free gift, the gift, the gift, the gift, the gift. gift. Is salvation by works? No, it's a gift. You receive grace. And when you look at this question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? This would not even be a question if we were saved by works. I'm going to let you think on that. It wouldn't even be a question. If we were saved by our own good works, this question would have never even been presented. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, what do you mean? We're you know we're we're living good lives. We're the good people. We're the religious people. If we're saved by our own works, that's a point. Sense to present the question. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, Paul was being accused of preaching that, that because of grace, it doesn't matter how we live. That's what they accuse Paul of. Grab me that mic, Blake. They were accusing Paul of preaching that because of the fact we're saved by grace, that, that it doesn't matter how we live. You got me on this one? There we go. All right. Now my hands are tied. But we all know that's not what Paul preached, right? Paul didn't Paul didn't preach, well, oh, now you're saved, just go live like hell. Right? You're saved, uh, you know, just, just go do whatever. Don't worry about your wedding vows. Don't worry about any of that. Just go, just go get wild and free, right? That's not at all what Paul preached. In fact, as we get here to chapter 6, he says, how should we that are dead to sin live any longer in it? So in chapter 6, verse number 1, there's this segue where Paul says, Look, we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. We're justified, we're made right in the eyes of God. You're not going to earn any more of God's favor. You're fully loved, fully accepted. You are fully in the family if you've trusted in Jesus Christ. He said, But now how do we live? Do we do we do we continue going back to the very things? that we're ashamed of when we look back on those days that, we would, that we'd, we'd, we'd take a do-over, we'd redo it if we could. He said, why would you keep going back in this, this cycle of toxicity? Why would you continue to run back to the very things that Jesus saved you out of? We don't want to continue in sin so that grace may abound. Why would we go back to the cancer that God healed us from? And so he says in verse number two, certainly not, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? It's a great question. How can those of us who died to sin continue to live in it? Why would I want to go back to bondage? Why would I want to go back to the very thing that God set me free from? See, because doctrinally speaking, as far as biblical teaching is concerned, we're, we're beginning to understand the nuances of the doctrine itself, Right? All the judicial terminology, the imputation, the justification, the propitiation, all those big words that we've defined, we're beginning now to wrap our minds around that and see that judicially, in the eyes of God, as far as God being the judge of all the universe, if we are saved, we have been fully forgiven. We're fully free. Death doesn't reign over us anymore. Now grace abounds. So, but then how does that apply to my life? How do I live now? He says, well, now we live free. Now we've been free not to continue living in sin. We've not been made free so that we can continue to do things that we're now ashamed of. He said, we've been made free not to live in disobedience. We have now been liberated to live by the power of God's Spirit, to live in freedom, to live out the power of justification and sanctification and glorification. He said, now we've been given the ability to do that, whereas before all we had was dead religion. Before all we had was was the best that we could muster in our physical nature, in our flesh. He said, But now you've been given a new nature through the Holy Spirit. And through that new nature, you have the power to no longer be defined by your sin nature. See, this is where I take issue when we constantly want to continue to identify ourselves with our failures. I used to be a drug addict. Most of y'all know that. But you'll never hear me say, my name is Matt Dudley and I'm an addict. You'll never hear me say it. I'll tell you why I won't say it. It's not because I'm too proud. I don't mind telling you what I've done. I won't say it, though, because I understand in Jesus Christ, I'm no longer named by my sin. I know that in Jesus Christ, I don't bear that identity anymore. I know that's not who I am. Do I still have a propensity to sin? And would I be foolish to not take notice of that? Absolutely. But it doesn't define me anymore. And your mistakes and your failures and your past and your sin and your struggles, even if you still struggle to this day, those things do not define you. You're defined by a new name that's been written down in glory. You're defined by Jesus Christ. He's your banner. He's your identity. He is your everything, if you've trusted in Him. So, in just a moment, we're going to stand together. I don't even have time, okay, to get into the next section. I was going to try, but it just ain't going to work. You can come back to the eleven o'clock service. I hold them hostage as long as I want to because we have no time constraints in the <laughs> eleven o'clock. But, but let me just say this: I didn't even—I didn't even get through the the introduction really, but but let me just say this to you, that if you're here today and you're saved, you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I don't know your story. I don't know how you came to faith in Christ. I'd love to hear it, but in this moment, all that matters is that you understand as a Christian, you are going to fail. Paul's going to talk about it a lot in chapter seven. As a Christian, you will fail. You'll, you'll, You'll still make mistakes. You may even Go back to some of the same things that God saved you from. Don't ever get so high and mighty as to think that you're above it. You're, You're not above it. I'm not above it. But we do have a new nature. And we don't have to live under the limitations of the old nature anymore. We have been made free in Christ. We've been given a new identity. And if you're here today as a believer and you're struggling, I want to encourage you to humble your heart before God and realize there's a power that transcends all your weaknesses and all your failures. And you can put that sin under the power of the Spirit of God and yield yourself to him and let his life become real to you. And if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior, I want to encourage you to step over the threshold from unbelief into belief today. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's not just believing in the sense that you go, yeah, I reckon Jesus is real. It's believing in the sense that you receive him as your savior. It's coming to the end of yourself and realizing that I've tried a thousand different ways and it still leaves me empty and lost. Believing in Christ is looking to him knowing that he is the way, he's the truth, and he's the life, and no man comes to the Father except through him. It's putting your faith in him and trusting in him as your Savior to forgive your sins, to cleanse you, and to raise you to new life by his power. Let's stand this morning with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Our Heavenly Father, we bow before you. God, we pray that your blessing would be on us. As we now reflect, as we absorb and try to soak in all the grace that you've offered us, I pray that you'd work in every heart. Father, you know the need of every person's life. And I pray that you'd meet it according to your riches in Christ Jesus, we pray.